Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of the Bardic College. And this is, um, we are here with the creator of the system that we are starting to run for you and the shows we're releasing weekly. Um, our show is known as the Secrets of the Seraphim, but we are here with its actual creator of the rules system and the world itself, Mr. John Wick, who is the author of Seventh Sea. John, how are you tonight? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you so much for taking uh, taking the invite. Uh, I'm sure you're incredibly busy and, and this kind of stuff just... It's so much fun for us to talk to creators and and pick their brains a little bit. So I'm hoping our our listeners really enjoy this. Well, you know the the it, it what game designers when we go to bars and stuff and after hours at conventions and talk about is the uh, the great and terrible fear that fans will figure up that we're making all of this up as we go. Oh, so you're so, GMs uh, basically? <laughs> yeah, we're all GMs. <laughs> Just throw me a curve, I can give you an answer. That kind of thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> We love that. That's okay. <laughs> That's fabulous. Um, before we get into the actual uh, reason why I reached out to you about this system and why we're so excited about it here at the Bardic College, uh, I wanted to just kind of get a little bit of background from you, if I could, and for our listeners, so I could kind of get to know you better as well. Um, how long have you been RPing? Where, how did you come into it? And then second part to that question, as a designer, you know, how did has this been something you've been involved with just in 7C or are there other projects? Oh, I've been involved in a lot of projects. Okay. Uh, so um, way back in 1981, I was living in Ames, Iowa, and I went to Spencer's Gifts with $10 and bought the very first Call of Cthulhu box set. Um, nice. it, they, they had ordered it by mistake and were trying to get rid of it, and it was on sale for 10 bucks. I recognized the word Cthulhu because I had read The Outsider and Others which is a short story collection and uh, I recognize the name Lovecraft. And so I bought it not really knowing what it was. And uh, that was it. That was my first experience with, with role-playing games and it really shaped, uh, you know, everything else. And that's how I got started. But, uh, and from there I, I, uh, I picked up other Chaosium role-playing games. I picked up Pendragon and I picked up Stormbringer. Um, I got RuneQuest, although at the time it was a little bit too, uh, it, 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 the RuneQuest didn't do for me what Pendragon and Cthulhu did because it would, because Pendragon and Cthulhu were a little bit more open-ended mm -hmm. and it really seemed like RuneQuest had its own story going on. And so for me at that time, when I was only, you know, still pre-teens, um, uh, it didn't, RuneQuest it really didn't communicate to me the way the other games did. And from there, I started playing Champions, which was my first superhero role-playing game, and uh, Traveler, which was the role-playing game mm. where you could die in character creation, which I thought was genius. And then... Um, <laughs> That's fabulous. Because uh, I played then, Traveler and I had that happen many times. <laughs> oh, we all have, right? Uh, there's a video of Alan Barr from Gallant Knight Games and I. Uh, we decided to make uh, characters, uh, traveler characters with the new traveler system. And oh, it is merciless. <laughs> really? It's My even character worse. was unsurvivable. The first oh. character I made. And I went, okay, this character just died. Just This character just died because there's no way I'm going to be able to play this character. And so we had to start over. Um, and uh, so, and from there, I, I picked up a whole, you know, I, I was a role-playing game fiend. Um but the uh, uh, so Cthulhu was my first role playing game, mm -hmm. and then Champions kind of showed me how game design worked because they were very upfront about it. Five points equals a a d a d six, and uh, and like the game design was was right up front, and that really showed me 
how game design worked. And then uh, the from there, the next game that really blew my mind was a game called Over the Edge, which essentially I had been running role-playing games uh, as kind of impromptu. Uh, like I didn't really have plans when I was a game master mm -hmm. and I didn't, I ignored rules and used the rules that I thought were useful at the time and all that. And the over the edge role-playing game, which was written by Jonathan Tweet and, and Robin Laws kind of like said, Hey, uh, this is how you run this game. And it's, you ignore most of the rules except when they're useful. And it, it kind of validated my whole game mastering experience, like my whole game mastering technique, right? Because it was in print in a role-playing game that it was okay to run it that way. So uh, that kind of blew my mind. And then, and also the way the game was designed. And of course, Vampire had a huge influence on me uh, for good and ill. Mm. And, uh, uh, and then from there, I started working for a company called Alderac Entertainment Group, who at the time were doing Shadis Magazine. And I was kind of brought in as a, as a writer for the magazine. But they were also working on a collectible card game called Legend of the Five Rings. Okay. And uh, and I kind of got brought in on that when I showed that not only was I a collectible card game fan, uh, not a fan of Magic. I didn't like Magic. I thought that Magic was actually a very poorly designed game. Um, but I was a big fan of the on-the-edge role-playing uh, card game and the vampire uh, card game. Jihad. Jihad, yeah. Nice. I was a Jihad player, yeah. And uh, Dave Williams, the lead designer, and I were both uh, big fans of Jihad, and I turned him on to On the Edge, and uh, we uh, started talking about the game along with Matt Wilson and Matt Starosik and DJ Trindle, and uh, I got brought on as kind of like the guy who writes flavor text, which is funny because when Peter Atkinson visited us when we were first starting out, he told me, oh, gee, at our office, that's a punishment. <laughs> and I told Peter Atkinson, I can tell. And uh, so uh, I suggested to the team that the L5R uh, game have a story that went over the course of a set number of expansions and that characters would change based on uh, uh, characters would change over time. And I got that idea from the On the Edge card game. And Dave loved it. And we kind of went from there. And, and, uh, then I got in charge of the L5R role-playing game, which was awesome. And that's where the initial roll and keep system came from. Okay. Uh, which was the, because we wanted to do a role-playing game that was uh, inspired by two really important things for us, which was the films of Mimo to Mis or uh, I'm sorry, the films of, um, of, um, uh, Oh, I was going to say, I'll say um, Yomoto Musashi's Book of the Five Rings mm -hmm. and the films of um, Kurosawa. Kurosawa, yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course. I wanted to say Akira Kurosawa, and I was like, that's not right. Is it's it? close. Yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> no, it's wrong. So, anyway, uh, and so the role playing game, one of the things that we wanted to do, because uh, Dave Williams and I were also fans of the old uh, 007 James Bond role playing game. Mm hmm. And in that game, uh, the chase mechanics had a betting system in it. And we were like, that's perfect. Cause we, and we both were like, we just used that system for everything. We just like threw out the rest of the system and just used the betting mechanic. Cause the betting mechanic was really cool. So it was, again, it was an idea that we had. And then it went through a whole bunch of like, um, 
they went through a whole bunch of iterations with everybody throwing in suggestions and everybody throwing in uh, ways to do it. And eventually it went through this crucible uh, and came out the other end, this really elegant uh, system for Legend of the Five Rings. And then uh, we adapted that to the 7C role-playing game, the first edition 7C role-playing game, which had a whole bunch of different things because we wanted that role-playing game to feel like a combination of the Princess Bride, uh, Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood movie, anything that Errol Flynn was in, uh, and, and other stuff. I my daughters are are role players as well, twenty four and twenty, and they grew up on the Seahawks and Captain Blood yep. and Robin Hood. So I am so down with what you're saying. I get it. Yeah, the feel <laughs> the flavor is there, um, especially in the second edition. I wasn't really privy to anything from first. So I, I as I said, I came to this uh, about you know five six months ago when we when I really just fell in love with it. And uh, but in in the second edition, it's 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 so apparent. You know, it's it's everywhere. So you, great job on that. Yeah, and so when we when we went to make second edition, it was myself, Mike Curry and Rob justice. And we're like, okay, so the first thing's first, uh, the wager system, the way that it works or the raise system, the way that it works in, in second edition on seven C isn't it's, it's too much about being precise, which is what the L five R game was about. And the big question was if Errol Flynn was playing this game, like, he would not roll and he would not set dice aside. He would use all of them. Right. Right. Because he's Errol Flynn. It's like, how many dice does Errol Flynn use? He uses all of them. And that's where the whole idea of roll and keep all came from. Uh, It was, and, uh, and uh, the other thing that they came from was uh, myself and James Ernest, who's the game designer of a ton, a literal ton of games uh, including Kill Dr. Lucky and uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were at a game, we, we meet up at, at game at game conventions and we do game design conferences and we have lunch and stuff. And we talk because talking with James is fantastic. He's, he's a great conversationalist. He's also a really great joke teller. I, I am not. I, I, I'm awful at telling jokes. James is awesome at telling jokes. But um and we were at a at, at the seminar, and he said something that I think was meant to be funny, um, but also uh, really profound. He said, um, "There's two kinds of games because we were joking around." And he said, "There's roll and move, and move and roll." And move and roll games are all of the miniatures strategy war games. You move your mans, and then you roll dice to see if your if your thing worked, if your strategy worked. Right. And that's and then there are uh, roll and move games, which is you roll dice and then you use dice as a utility to get things done. So, for example, Clue is a roll and move game. You roll the dice and you go, okay, I could move to the library or I could move to the lounge. Okay, what what do I want to use my dice for? As opposed to a game like Warhammer, where you move all your mans and then you roll dice and then because the game is so bloody random. Uh, the world explodes and everything that you did doesn't mean anything. You've been at my table, John. (laughs) (laughs) I I used to play a lot of Warhammer and then I figured out how dice work and I went, oh, this game is not what it says it is. Um, But anyway, the, uh, uh, I should say I was playing Warhammer back in the Mm nineties. So it's probably changed since then, but you know, there's that. Um, So anyway, and I told James, I said, I don't think there's such a thing 
as a roll and move role playing game. Because all role playing games are you tell the GM what you're going to do, and then you roll dice and see if it worked. So I want, and so from that, I was I was talking to Rob and Mike, and I said I want to do a roll and move role playing game where you roll first and then use your dice as utilities to get things done. And uh, uh, for those of you who can't, for those listeners who can't imagine that, imagine um, playing a game like D and D. Uh, D&D is the one I, I use the most, is that you roll a D20, and then based on that roll, you determine what your character is going to do next. So it could be an attack, because you rolled really high, or if you rolled really low, you say, you know what, I cast a spell and heal this person. Because my roll isn't going to affect that. Right. So your roll informs what your next action is going to be. And so for 7C, the idea of you roll all your dice, you roll your dice, and then you use them to make raises, essentially, to make actions. And then you can go from there. It means that you can do things like, okay, um, I'm in a bar. Uh, the bar is on, f- I'm in the tavern. The tavern is on fire. Uh, there's a villain who's trying to get out of the tavern with uh, the, the prince that I'm trying to rescue. And there's a big bar fight going on. And what do you do? Well, I roll a bunch of dice. And based on the dice, I take these actions. I jump off the, I jump off the balcony, swing across the chandelier, kick the bad guy in the face, and uh, rescue the prince. And then we uh, grab the magic item that's in the room and we get out. And you can do all of that with one roll of the dice. If you're lucky enough and you have the it, skills. Yeah. If you have this. Yeah. And, and if everything fits your approach, right. If, if, which is how we, we we're like, we need one guiding thing. We're like, because you can't just roll dice and do anything you want. Right. There should be a, a limit because number one limits are fun because it forces players to make choices. Mm-hmm. And part of the game design is forcing players to make choices that they don't want to make. That's that's game design, and then um, the other part of game design is rewarding people for making cho- making choices that you want them to make. So we're like, okay, so let's do it by approach. And your character's approach is the trait and the skill that you're using. And if the uh, and you have a whole bunch of raises, let's say you have, you have five raises because you roll dice and you have five raises. And my approach is going to be finesse, which is leaping around and jumping and things, and weaponry, which is using my sword. So as long as one of my actions falls under one of those two things, which is my approach, jumping around or using my sword, each action I take only costs one raise. And and if it doesn't fall under my approach, you can still do it, but it costs you two raises. So, and that was, that came out of a lot of playtesting of kind of like running through how all of this stuff works and just kind of figuring it out. But that's the system that we came up with. And it's, it's amazing. Um, if you can't, if, if I think John explained it better than even I have, and I've just, and I've been tearing through the rules like wildfire, but this is the man <laughs> that created it. So yeah, it it's, this is such a, I want to say it's, it's, uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm trying to capture the word where it's, it's, it, it, the finesse is there. It, it's so beautifully done in the fact that the players have such control over how much they want to express the actions they're doing. Um, you know, you, you set the scene, you give it to them and they just, okay, like you said, I jump to the chandelier. I just, and certainly, you know, you, you reward the characters for coming up with beautiful and creative ways of handling the situation. And I just think that's, that's just so much more fun. And, and my players have been loving it. 
So that's, you know, hats off to you on that. That was great. Well, um, I'm, I'm glad your, your players are loving it because there's people online who say it doesn't work. Yeah. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's, there's people online who, who say there's only one role-playing system and that's D and D. So why mess with it? Uh, uh, you know, there's the, the one of the things that's beautiful about role playing since its you know inception, back with you know the guys you know Gary Gaix and the rest of them that sat in the basement and were doing their thing, and then other people that came aboard and and you know made their own games. It's it's an ever evolving process, and if there's something out there for everybody, I think, and if not, it's coming. Like there's so many creative people doing their thing. Uh, yeah, you know, it's just give it time. If if you're not perfectly thrilled, change it. If you think it's not the right setting, research, you'll find it. And that's sort of how I fell into this. Um, so that kind of leads me to my next question, because I know what I was looking for in a role playing game. And you, you you designed it. But what brought you to the tall ship era? Is this a love affair for this? Or was somebody out there saying we really need this? Was it a company that approached you and said, we need you to write a role playing game with tall ships in it? How did that come about? When I was working for AEG, um, we had done Le- Legend of the Five Rings, which was Samurai. Mm-hmm. And we're, we were young and we had chips on our shoulders and we were all like, okay, um, nobody's really succeeded at a Japanese Samurai Asian role-playing game, right? right? And okay, what is the other genre that nobody's really succeeded at? That's like cool and fun. And, and the first thing on everybody's lips was Pirates. And as a matter of coincidence, I had just finished a book, two books, as a matter of fact. I finished a book called The Honest Courtesan, which is got made into a um, better-than-average movie called uh, Dangerous Beauty, which was about uh, the 17th-century courtesan, uh, Veronica DeFranco, and uh, her life in in um, and her life in uh, uh, in Italy. And and uh, the the book is is really good. The movie is fun, and uh, the other book I just finished reading was a book called uh, "The Last Sorcerer," which was about Isaac Newton and his obsession with alchemy. And uh, and I was like, okay, well, let's think about this. The 17th century, the 1600s, is the is quite near the golden age of piracy. Um, it's, it's the beginning of international espionage. It's the beginning of secret societies. It's the beginning of, uh, there's a whole, the Hanseatic league is running around. There's all this really cool stuff that's going on in the 16th, in the 1600s, including pirates. So what if we just did a game about that, about the 16th century? And, um, that's, that's where it came from. Uh, at the time also I was, uh, I had been part of a of a, a sea shanty group called the Sea Dogs, the Sea Dogs of Saint Dymphna, and uh, we were singing we sing sea shanties at Renaissance fairs and and um, and and uh, and folk music fairs and things like that. Really? Oh yeah. And so and they're still around. They still do stuff. And I uh, uh, it, when they do Renaissance fairs, they're the Sea Dogs of Saint Dymphna. And when they do uh, when they do Victorian fairs. They are uh, the Paddy West School of Seamanship, uh, <laughs> producing the best seamen in all of London. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, and uh, if you do research on Paddy West, he was a fa- fantastic uh, individual. Uh, but anyway, the uh, so yeah, that, that I had become a fan of, of Elizabethan and Victorian sailors and the really hard, rough life that they had. 
And also I had got introduced from a friend of mine, uh, the works of uh, O'Brien, uh, the master and commander fellow. Right. And just loved his stuff. And so I, I kind of really, really liked the, the whole, you know, life at the sea, you know, the life of a sailor, the life of a Navy sailor and, and did a whole bunch of research on pirates and, and all that stuff. So when we're like, we want to do pirates, I was like, I'm ready for this. <laughs> right. Been... That's amazing. Um, I, I came to this through just a, a, a love affair like you, you know, of pirates and things and came upon the rules and I had always been thinking to myself when, you know, where could I, how could I fit something else to do this? And I even had characters that had backgrounds, you know, in other game systems that were pirates, uh, especially in, I mean, a traveler, that's a phenomenal background to pick, pick you know, you're out there yep. raiding, but um, nothing, nothing as beautifully or as, you know, as well done as this. And I come from a lot of my pirates are, as we said, Errol Flynn, and then the Owen Godfrids, the um, Horatio Hornblower, the New Adventures, and all that stuff that was done on the BBC, yep. which were I thought really wonderful shows. So yeah, it's it's it, it's there, and and I'm so glad that you did it. So when did the first edition actually come out, John? How long ago was that? Oh, gee, 1999 around wow. there, right okay. right at the cusp of the the turn of the century. Wow, that's when first edition came out. And how long did that last? Because this one, the newest is what, 2016? Something like that, yeah. Something like that? Okay. Wonderful. Are you happy where second edition is right now? I am, but like most game designers, I want to change everything. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> that's your that's, homebrew videos. <laughs> yeah, that's the homebrew video, right? So the, you know, part of it is that um, having run the game for a number of years, like when when my process of game design is that I start with everything on the character sheet and then whittle it down based on what the players are using. So if the players aren't using a thing, then it, then it goes, it's, it's off the character sheet. And uh, a big important part of it, so, something that, that um, uh, Jess Heinig taught to me, which was something I taught to him, which is kind of weird, uh, was that um, uh, if it's not on the character sheet, it's not real. And what I mean by that, and I use uh, uh, Jess as an example, is because, uh, so Jess Heining is a brilliant game designer. Right now he's working for uh, Star Trek Online. At the time he was working for White Wolf when I met him. Okay. Um, or actually when I met him, he was working for Decipher. And he had worked at White Wolf and did a whole bunch of stuff. And he was working on Revised Mage. And one of the things he did was, is in first edition mage, there is an, this thing called resonance, which is what does your magic feel like? And so whenever you use your magic, there's a, a distinction to it. Like when I use my magic, the temperature drops by 10 degrees in the room. When you use magic, uh, everybody has the taste of oranges, right? So everybody has this thing called resonance. And no one ever used it. And Heinig thought, well, this is really cool and it needs to be in the game. So when he did second edition revised or whatever version it was he did, he put it on the character sheet. And everybody came to him and said, this is a fantastic new rule. And he's like, this has been in the rule since first edition. I just put it on the character sheet. That's because if it's not on your character sheet, it's not real. It doesn't exist. So when we did first edition 7C, one of the things we wanted to do is have skills like jump, climb, swing, so that it would be on the character sheet. So when people see it, when they look down the character sheet, what can I do? They would say, oh, I can jump, climb, and swing. Okay. Right. You know, type thing. 
And um, that's not in second edition. And I'm not going to make a new rule for it because that seems extraneous. But at the same time, I really want, uh, like, if, if, like, like, for example, in second edition, stories are on your, your character's story is on your character sheet. So Inigo Montoya's story of, I'm going to kill the man who killed my father, is right there on his character sheet. And so whenever he looks at his character sheet, he sees it and is reminded, oh, that's right. I am looking for the man who killed my father. And, uh, and so that was one of the, like, one of the things we wanted to do. But yeah, I, the game has been out for five or six years. So of course I want to change things. <laughs> never, never fully satisfied. I don't think any writer ever a hundred percent is. No, no. And, and as a matter of fact, uh, when I met, uh, I had the really fortunate, uh, opportunity for like two minutes to meet Terry Gilliam, who was at a coffee shop in Los Angeles and I, I bumped into him and I told him, I said, Mr. Gilliam, I'm a huge fan of your fan of your films. Thank you very much for making them. They mean a lot to me. And he's like, yeah, my films suck. Oh, wow. And I was like, uh, you're being facetious. You're being funny. You're Terry Gilliam. And I was like, no, no, they don't suck. And he goes, yeah, then nothing matches what's in my head. Really? And, and, and I was like, I'm really so, you know, I'm, I, I'm an author and I, I make games and things and I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing that I do really matches what's in my head. And it's really hard to get that, that down on paper. And he was like, yeah, pretty much. Bye. And then he left. <laughs> you know, but for Terry Gilliam, John, I got to tell you, if it's not matching what's in his head, I'm afraid. Yeah. Because some of his stuff, <laughs> Brazil still leaves me sitting there pulling my, pulling my hair out. I've watched the movie five or six times and I'm like, all right, I'm going to sit down one more time. Every couple of years, I'm like, I'm doing Brazil doing Brazil. And I sit and watch, I go, yep, still not sure exactly what he would need it, but that, it's okay. It's Terry Gilliam. <laughs> yeah. For me, it's uh, my favorite Terry Gilliam film. Uh, I mean, everybody's like 12 monkeys is his best film. And I can't really disagree with that, but my favorite Terry Gilliam film is still the Fisher King because I'm an Arthur. Nut. Oh, wow. Yeah. And um, I think it's his most accessible and his most positive film. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And um and I love it and and that film makes me cry every time I watch it. Every I actually, time. I actually have Robin Williams signs uh, autograph from The Fisher King uh from one of the where he and it's Jeff Bridges I believe are standing in the doorway and he's and he finally got him cleaned up and yeah. he's standing there. Uh it uh, when Disney first opened Hollywood Studios, it was up for sale in that there was this place which you can go in and buy all kinds of Hollywood memorabilia, somebody's tiki hut or something. And it was right there as you entered Hollywood Studios. And uh, it was there. My father was like, oh, my God, I knew you love this movie. And he picked it up for me as a gift. I, I still have it. So oh, wow. Another another one of those things that, you know, along the way that you find that people that are in the same hobbies and, you know, writer, they just it seems like I've known you forever. Some of the things you're saying, I'm like, John, where the hell have we not met each other before? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, Robin Williams was a gamer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that always like who you find out as a gamer always fascinates me. It, 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 there were so many hidden during the, uh, the, the, you know, the late seventies and early eighties. And, you know, you just didn't, you whispered it and now it's like, Oh, Vin Diesel plays. Oh, really? <laughs> like <Vin> yeah. Diesel? <laughs> um, so back to seventh scene, one of the things that I loved about this game and I'm, I'm a Robert E. Howard fanatic uh, from when I was growing up as a kid, read all the Conan Sumerian stuff. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this and I hope it's, it, it fits for you, but it's how I saw it. I love that when he built his world, he kind of took things that were that sort of sounded the way they were in like in our language, like, you know, um, 
he did like Kyrgyzstan, you know, and, and Stygia. And you're like, oh, okay, that's Egypt. And I, and I can relate to that. I love that you did that in this game because it's, it's, there's enough in there that feels new with not just the names, but the revisioning of the borders and the cultures a little bit. But yet there's enough there where you go, oh, Inishmore, Ireland, got it. You know, where it at least feels like as you're calling on it as a GM, you can kind of pull things out in your head and say, that's what it would look like. That's how the dress would be. I love that about this game. Yeah, it was a it was a deliberate choice to make it an analog of Europe rather than Europe, because that way we can have Queen Elizabeth and King Philip or King Louis uh, at the same time. Right. That was really it. And it was oh. like, let's capture the 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 golden age or, or you know, a really recognizable uh, uh, time that's around the same time as the 16th as the 17th century. Let's pick something that's around the same time. And then that way we can have things like Queen Elizabeth in England. Uh, we can have uh, Louis in France. We can have the Hanseatic League. We can have um, we can have Machiavelli in Italy, you know, all of those kinds of things. We, we can do all of that and not have to worry about, you know, uh, actual history. And right. it's a fantasy. It's it's that's what it's designed to be. But it's also like great shorthand. People are like, do you care that people say, you know, tell people, well, Montaigne is France and Avalon is England and Eisen is Germany. I'm like, no, that's we put it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But it also at the same time, when I uh, before COVID hit, I did a lot of traveling, going to conventions overseas Um like going to Poland and going to Italy and going to going to uh, Italy or uh, uh, Scotland and Ireland, and uh, I'd always show up and go. So, uh, uh, what do you guys think about what we did? Are you okay? And uh, they're all like, "Oh yeah, that's that's fine. It's you know whatever." But my favorite response is when I went to Italy, and I said, well, "What do you guys think of Adachi? Because you're kind of the bad guys," and uh, and. Uh, and they're like, oh no no, it's it's perfect. All of the uh, Vadachi is perfect. All the, all the men are bastards and all the women are witches. <laughs> That's fabulous. And I was like, oh okay. <laughs> we have a Vadachi character in the in the Seraphim, uh, and she's she has some of that uh, with the Striga background, you know, the the witches and the, mm -hmm. the whole idea of that. So there's a little bit going on for her. So we're going to be playing that up uh, in in the show as well. But that's the, I love that the uh, you know. I, I don't know, Europe, I've, been, I've traveled myself there. And sometimes you're like, just like that, you know, are you okay with what we're doing? Oh, heck yeah. You know what that, you know, some, it's just a little bit more relaxed in a lot of ways. I, yeah. I don't know, but it, it, I've never found it to be awkward or, or really uncomfortable. And when I've traveled over there, it's been nothing but wonderful experiences. So I think it's, I think that's great that they kind of take it and all in stride and say, oh, this is the way to do it. I'm okay with it. That's wonderful. You know, and one of the other things that, that I really wanted to, have a sense of in 7C is that there's a sidebar about rulings, not rules, which came from an essay that I read online uh, by one of the original uh, uh, people who were like part of that original D&D &D group. And one of the things that he said was, is that he hated uh, third edition and the subsequent editions because part of the spirit of D&D &D was that these are rulings, not rules. And what he meant by that was a circumstance will come up and the, and the GM goes, it seems like the best way to arbitrate this is roll this die. And so all of the rules 
with scare quotes around the word rules in uh, first edition D and D were this is how we did it, and that's it. You know, like nothing is canon, right? Right. And one of the ideas that I wanted in Seventh C for both the mechanics and the setting is like there is no such thing as canon. This is my Eisen. This is my Vodace. Yours can be entirely different, and that's a good thing. That's a feature, not a bug. And so are the rules. The rules are a feature. You know, the, the the fact that people are like, you know, I don't really use this rule. I'm like, sure, fine. Go. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that's fine. You know, and 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 I get approached at conventions where people are kind of tentative, and they're like. You know, John, we really don't use this this particular rule in the game. Is that okay? And I'm like, yes. Did you read the thing that said that you should modify the game to your game group because no game group is the same? Because that's the way that we all play role playing games. I don't, I don't really understand the the um, because when I run role playing games, generally I use about maybe ten to twenty percent of the rules. Yep. And I'm I run this very successful game with a lot of very happy players. Yeah, there's raw kills me. Um, the original AD and D, the the forward from the creators. I know exactly what you're saying because it said right in the be- right in the beginning, the DM is the is the world. You know, work with him, and if you can't figure it out, roll it out or or come up with a way of of arbitrating it. But you know, we're just we're giving you guidelines to set up and kind of you know show you what to do. But this is not we're not the end all be all for this. It's your world. Yeah. Let the you know let the story evolve. That's the key, and and it's so important because D and D has gone the way of you know the mid maxer and 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 listen. There's a again there's a game for everybody, and if that's your if your deal is to put that math into a position where you cannot fail and you want to build you know the greatest thing ever and and tweak every rule and use your feats and all that stuff. That's great. Play it, and if your group loves that, enjoy it. Have a good time. For me, my play, I've never found that to be the way I wanted to do it. And like you, thank God I've found a lot of players that like to do it my way as well. Because it, for us, it tells great stories. And I'm sure the other ones are good, but we prefer the words and, and, and the vision versus the math. So my hat's off to that. I think that's great. Yeah, it's, I agree. I, I, I don't, it's like the 7C game, when I, when, I, when I teach people how to play the 7C game, and then eventually, like after a game session or maybe maybe two, um, they figure out, you know, there's no really way for me to fail in this game. And I'm like, yeah. How oh, great is that? Um, yeah. Is that intentional? I'm like, yes. You're you're you are Captain Blood. You are Inigo Montoya. You are the Man in Black from Princess Bride. You're Captain Jack Sparrow. You're, you know, whatever swashbuckling character you want to think of. Generally, those characters are highly competent, who fail at the dramatically appropriate moment in time that causes the story to to move forward. And so we have the I fail rule in 7C, which is before you roll dice, you can tell the GM, I fail. And then you describe how you fail to the GM, and then the GM rewards you with a hero point. And, yep. and they're like, so I get rewarded for failing? I'm like, yeah. And I can't even take credit for that. That comes from my friend Jared Sorensen, who did Octane and Inspectors and uh, and Parsley and a whole bunch of other really great games. 
Wow. And, and that is, it's, it's an amazing feature because it does. And, and what, and people, when they get confused by it, John, I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah. my players have even said it. And I said to them, understand what you're doing. You're failing. I'm rewarding you for setting up a moment of tension. Mm-hmm. Now I, as the storyteller can play with that and give it to the other players and have them come rescue you from prison or, you know, stop the, you being burned at the stake or whatever crazy thing we want to do with it. But you've, you've given me another path and Avenue. I think that's amazing. Yeah, the best example is when I was running the game at a convention and a group showed up and they were a regular group, right? It was at Gen Con Mm -hmm. and they wanted to play with, you know, with, you know, and essentially they showed up and we had a big room full of 7th C games and I would walk in randomly and go, I am running this table for this game session. And they're like, woohoo! And so um, I'm running the game, I'm improvising, I'm looking at the characters and, uh, and uh, one, I noticed one of them has the star-crossed uh, Arcana on his character sheet, and I said, "Oh, this is interesting." And they all, and the rest of the players groan and like, he always falls in love with the villain. That's that's what he does. If there's a villain, he falls in love with the villain. That's that's what he does. And I was like, "Okay, that's great." So I'm running a one-shot for them, and the villain shows up, and the player who has the star-crossed thing, he says, "Um, I want to fall in love with the villain. I I want my hero point for falling in love with the villain." And, and I went, okay, here's your hero point. You're falling in love with the villain. And he goes, okay. And something else, there's a mechanic for redeeming villains, for turning them into heroes. And he said, we're only playing one session. Can we like do a con- super condensed version of that? And I went, sure, yes. Because that's what you say as a GM. You say yes. right? And you say yes or roll dice, right? And so we came up with this like cute little mechanic that he could like collect hero points right and things like that and then roll dice at the end of the game session to you know to uh to turn the villain into a hero and at the end of the game session they're on the top of a castle you know and typing dueling on the walls of the castle because that's what you do and they're they're dueling and and he's giving this speech he like stands up on his chair on the table and he's giving this this speech while he's fencing while he's dueling the villain and saying i love you we're we're more alike than we're not and it's beautiful it's really really great right he's given this great speech and i say all right here's your opportunity roll to to you know to to change the villain into a hero and he goes no i fail <laughs> great that's and I awesome. say, that's right. And she disarms you, shoves her sword through your belly and kicks you off the side of the castle and you plummet to the moat below. And, and all the thrilled. other players are like, no! <laughs> but he enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. And, and but that's the reaction that he wanted, right? Because the game mechanic is designed to facilitate player storytelling. The yep. players get a word in what happens. And that means, because Robin Laws likes to say that um, role-playing games are the only medium, the only literary medium where the author and the audience are the same person. And I like telling Robin, no, Robin, that's fan fiction. But um, he's right. He's totally right. And part of that is that the rest of the group is also your audience. So once you inform the players, hey, look, the, the rest of the group is your audience right? You play to them and create situations where they feel tension about what your character is doing. And when you have games like 7C or games like Octane or, or games that involve a, um, uh, a mechanic where the player has a say in what happens next, then they get to do that. They actually get to play to the rest of the, uh, rest of the group as an audience. That's amazing. 
That's really, yeah, and that is so true. Um, John, one of the other things I wanted to cover, <clears throat> 7C feels so inclusive. Uh, it, it really does break down the boundaries between the genders. It, it does all that stuff and says up front, anybody can play anything. Don't ever, you know, never worry about it. Have a good time with it. I think that's fabulous. And you also have this wonderful way with your team of writers and the people that have helped you along with, with this project of looking at these cultures and taking the, the most interesting and the best parts of who they were as different around the world. Like I, whether it be in the new world book or in the, from the Crescent empire, it, you bring out the the flavor of it and the real good stuff and make it so that it, it just feels just overwhelmingly positive. Um, I'm going to see if you remember on the, in the forward of book for the Crescent empire, you talk about two gentlemen coming up to you and talking about page 155 and having you sign it. Can you go over that story for us real quick? Yeah. Um, so, uh, when the book is still in production, the art director asked me, John, can we have a picture of two men kissing in the book? And I said, yes, but we also need a picture of two women kissing in the book and a picture of a man and a woman kissing. Like, Cause I want, everybody gets to kiss in, in my book. Okay. Right. So that was the picture that went in. And I said, also, so when people come to me like they will, and uh, although, although they only do it online because they don't have the courage and their convictions to, to tell me in, to, to my face, is uh um why did why is this picture in here this you know why is this picture of two guys kissing in the book and so give me the opportunity to ask them are you asking me is this a kissing book and either they will get that or they won't and if right. they don't get it then they're no longer worth my time and if they do get it then we can go forward with a conversation but yeah it and and a lot of that had to do not just with me but with like i said the art director brought up that idea um, Daniel, Daniel Lawson was the, uh, was the line developer for the book for, uh, for a while. And, um, she worked with the writers to make, to make the game, uh, inclusive. And, and part of that was me talking to Danielle and, and she was on board before we even talked. And I said, look, I, everybody gets to be a hero. That's just the, that's it. Period. End of sentence. Everyone gets to be a hero. Well, what about these people? Oh, they're a subset of everyone. So yes, they get to be heroes. So that includes, you know, and, and it was a real challenge for the Crescent Empire book uh, because that part of the world is so, I mean, there are wars that are thousands of years old. Right. And the one of the challenges of the Crescent Empire book was saying, look, ev everybody gets to be a hero period you know and and it doesn't matter who you look at across a border and don't like that's irrelevant and uh that actually comes from uh, uh a role-playing game called torg which is a wonderful role-playing game about uh other realities invading our reality to steal our reality energy and um part of and and one of those uh and in uh in and it uses the real world and in one of the the scenes, one of the, the 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 backdrop things in Torg, is that at Masada, there are um, people from Israel, people from Saudi Arabia, people from Iraq and Iran, all together in Masada, holding off the reality invaders, fighting side by side. Fascinating. And I thought that was such a powerful 
scene and like most you know older role-playing games a lot of it gets buried by the lead it's like here's this little thing about you know masada and here's the mechanic for repairing engines right it's like that's what's important right but um that was such a powerful scene to me uh that i was like you know i really want a gaming group that has characters from each of the nations of the crescent empire standing together fighting bad guys and the bad guys are the ones who are saying you should hate this person and you should hate this person and you should hate this person because they come from a different place or they worship a different god than we do or you know whatever it is right yeah. trivial bullshit like that and um and that's what i wanted the crescent empire book to be and danielle and the writers did a really fantastic job of doing it i I again this this book uh, this is the newest one I've got and I'm I'm just tearing through it I love it, uh, it and it and it did uh, it hit me right away as I was reading it I'm like there's really there's tensions of nations because there's politics and yeah. politics politics happen so of course seven seven C has that feel the Montaigne's are always going to be doing something over here you know Avalon wants to do something over there Vodachi's got its its own interests all over the world everybody's doing their thing trying to you know get gold and. But that's politics. It has nothing to do with the uh, the color of skin or anything else. Yeah. And if it and if it does, smack that, <laughs> slap that bitch. You know, it's like that's the guy we don't want to deal with or we want to put down. And that and it and it comes through in the rating. It really does. So again, great job with that. That was fabulous. Cool. Um, magic will come to an end. I I know you, you're busy, and I I promise you we try to keep this to an hour. Uh, but I wanted <laughs> to ask you one other question about magic. Magic is is really interesting in this game. And it, 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 again, it leaves a lot of room for, for us to interpret and do things with it. Kind of gives base, the basics for what, how, you know, this, if you want to use these rules, use them. Was this always something you envisioned in 7C? Did this come about in first edition? Was it second edition? Where did you really feel that magic needed its place here? So I wanted, when we first did it, we wanted each nation to have their own kind of magic. And that came from the, what may or may not be true is that the senators from the old, uh, the old empire, the Roman empire, made deals with supernatural entities that gave their bloodlines magic. And, uh, and we wanted something, first of all, when I'm a big fan of magic Mm -hmm. and I'm a big fan of telling people there is no such thing as an atheistic magic system because all magic and all the history of humanity is you calling upon a supernatural entity and exchanging favors for power that's what all magic is and uh that includes uh uh shamanistic magic of call you know animistic magic of calling upon spirit animals to assist you in exchange for favors or voodoo which is the same thing or chinese uh uh you know chinese magic the the various kinds of that Wherever you look, that's that's what it is. And so that's what I wanted magic to be. I wanted it to be, we have called upon these supernatural agencies and we have exchanged something for power. And what I also wanted in the in the game, and, and this is a lot of conversations with me and um, my wife at the time, Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Marr, who uh, 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 wrote the opening fiction and some other fiction for us for the, for the game and things. Um, we're like we want we want to have magic that costs something other than I spend an hour memorizing spells. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I can do that. So what? No, it has to cost something, and um, and the power that you get 
always has some kind of monkey's paw attached to it. Um, it comes down to uh, my my three rules of magic, which are the three rules of magic are it always costs more than you think. You never get exactly what you want. And the third rule is with magic, you can break all the rules. And and that's what I wanted magic to be. And the other element that Jennifer and I agreed on was whatever the cost was that these people paid for the magic has been forgotten. So people don't remember what the cost is anymore. And the one of the plot lines was is that it's going to come back. That cost is going to come back in various ways. And so that was that was really our guiding principle for for what magic was in the game. I fall back to the one. I, so we all take as writers, we take influences from other places and tales we read when we were kids and movies we saw. I always fall back to the Golden Voyage of Sinbad with Tom Baker. Yeah. And every time he cuts himself, he ages and he's like, Master, no, Ahmed, you have no idea the powers of darkness, what they need. And I'm, that was the day I said as a GM and I was young and I, and I actually think I saw it first and then I started running games like within a couple of years. But it was like, okay, you may be a mage and you can study your spells, but it's coming. You know, there's always going to be that price. And I, I just, I, again, it fits right into my wheelhouse of how this, how the, the system should run. And, and, you know, yeah, you have awe-inspiring power, but it creeps up on you, dude. It's got, something can happen. Yeah. So it's the John fabulous. Constantine rule of magic. Yeah, exactly. It's going to get you. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So the last two questions I have for you, John, and these are fun, so they'll probably go real quick. Um, you're walking home from a tavern in one of the nations, and suddenly you're grabbed and a sack is dragged over your head. When the bag is removed, which crew are you happiest pressed you into service? Pirate, privateer, naval, or merchant? Or another? Uh, who's pressed me into service? Well, definitely pirates, because... Okay. <laughs> uh, on a pirate ship, you have many more uh, rights and things than you do on a naval ship when you get press ganged on sure. a naval ship. So de definitely pirates. Cause they definitely want me for a specific reason. <laughs> okay. Is that where, and again, you said earlier in the interview, pirates seem to be, you have sort of, I, I don't over romanticize pirates. I always try to keep my players remembering as, especially as we started this campaign, you know, pirates. Yeah. They're sexy and everything, but they're also, you know, kind of bad guys at times. They kill people and take their money. Right. I mean, which is, oh, they, you know, was when we were doing, you know, when we were doing 7C, we're kind of like the new edition of 7C. It was kind of like, we need to find a villain for pirates. We need something the pirates are fighting against. And of course, that turned out to be the Atabayan Trading Company, which is the worst villain I could possibly imagine. And they were in many ways. Yep. So, yeah, fabulous. Yeah. And how do you say it, John? Because I, I, I think I just heard you say it and I'm saying it wrong. Uh, Adabayan. Adabayan. Okay. The Adabayan Trading Company. Adabayan. Okay. I had a TBN. So, okay. But again, there can't be, there's no wrong way to say it because it's at my table. So that's right. <laughs> I'm learning. See, I, I agree with you on that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, this one, I, I, I tend to ask guests that I'm really impressed with, and I knew I was going to enjoy your company. So, uh, just from, like I said, watching some of the videos you've, you've done and the books, uh, if you were going to be able to role play at a table with, three or four other people from history, any people that you can think of, uh, who would they be? Who would be your influences and who would you want to share the night with? Uh, the first is someone I never got to play with. And I was even invited to play with and I turned it down was Greg Stafford. 
Okay. Um, Greg Stafford designed Pendragon and RuneQuest and uh, and a whole host of other things. And uh, I knew Greg. Uh, I think that it's safe to say that Greg and I were friendly. Um, and uh, we lived in the same city for a short period of time. And he invited me over to play Pendragon with him. And I was actually doing something else and I turned him down and I shouldn't have because it meant I never got a chance to play with him before he passed away. So the first one would definitely be Greg. Um, uh, I would love to play Warhammer with Robin Williams. Wow. I think that would have been one of the most hilarious. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that would have been fantastic. And then um, I would have really loved to have played Little Wars with H.G. Wells. Um, H.G. Wells made a game called Little Wars, which was one of the first English, maybe in the first English, but there were German games, uh, uh, miniatures, essentially strategy game, uh, which involved the, and you can find the PDF online. You can find a, it, it's public domain, so you can find it online. It involved uh, putting a curtain over the table so that each person moved their units and then you move the curtain aside to see what the other person did. Wow. Yeah. I would, I would have playing, playing uh, little wars with HG Wells would have been fun. Fascinating. Fascinating. All right. Well, John, I, like I said, we kept it to an hour. I, I feel I could talk to you for longer. You've been so fascinating and it's such an honor again to have you here. I hope that uh, as the conventions open up and people start moving about again and, and feeling a little safer, you know, either, if they risk it this year, cause I'm heading to origins, but as the, as it opens up, hopefully one day I'll have a chance to actually shake your hand and meet you in real, in, you know, in real life and, and just say hello. But um, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us. Cool. Thank you. If we uh, make it to origins, we, we should, uh, we should hang out. Absolutely. I, I raise a glass, have a drink real quick and, and just say hello. If we have the opportunity, I would, I would, I would love that. Awesome. All right. Well, listen, everyone, thank you for joining us. I hope this gives you a little bit more insight into what we are doing here at the Bardic College and why all of our voice actors that that join us and, and make these stories come to life, uh, the players that you hear and the characters that you're falling in love with, we hope uh, you now know why we were so impressed and so wanted to do you know the 7C campaign for you. Uh, but from all of us here, we want to say thank you, John, again, and good night. Good night. <laughs>